organised jointly by Labour Party Marxists and Communist Party of Great Britain. And this week it's a week in politics with uh, Jack Conrad from the Provisional Central Committee of CPGB. Jack. Okay, thanks, uh, Stan. Uh, well, sometimes weeks are full of uh, yawn, as far as I'm uh, concerned. This week, there's loads of um, uh, particular stories in the press, in the media. Um, I'm not going to try to do a comprehensive uh, uh, coverage. It would take far too long. So I'm just going to pick out um, a number of uh, particular questions. And I'm going to begin uh, with Scotland. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was sort of speculating um, that uh, everything looked uh, like um, it was going to be a clear majority uh, for the SNP in the Hollywood uh, elections. And uh, then we'd be into a constitutional crisis, uh, the outcome uh, of which is sort of impossible to predict. Um, a couple of weeks uh, later, we're into the Alex Salmond uh, inquiry. Nothing quite comes out uh, that, uh, you know, there you are, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, you're banged up, up to rights, um, you're out, quite the opposite. She seems to have got out um, of it. Um, so although she was uh, found to be misleading uh, the Scottish Parliament by a, a committee vote, she survived easily uh, the vote of uh, uh, confidence. Uh, and what did we see straight after? Uh, we saw Alex Salmond um, launch his uh, new party, uh, ALBA. That's the old name um, for Scotland. And... Um, what it's committed to is standing in the top-up list. Um, people who are not in Britain and even people in Britain might need that explaining. Um, that system, it's a system of disproportionate representation, right? So in Scotland, uh, there are 73 directly elected first-past-the-post um, MSPs, members of the Scottish Parliament, and then they have 56 elected, but these people are elected, um, how should we put it, in order to, to account for proportionality, um, not as you would expect it, according to their votes that they get in the top-up section, uh, but it's top-up in relationship also to the first-past-the-vote system. In other words, the more votes you actually get in the first-past-the-post side of things, the less votes you get, proportionately speaking, on the top-up uh, side of it. So what Alex Salmond is saying is that he's only going to stand in the top-up section, and there's a certain truth there that um, this could actually help uh, the SNP cause. Um, in, in other words, uh, at the moment, um, the SNP dominates the first past the, the, the post side of things. Um, and precisely because of that, it therefore gets less in the way of top-up seats. So a party coming along and standing just in the top-up section uh, can boost uh, the cause of um, an independence uh, referendum in the way uh, that the SNP by itself couldn't. Uh, this was the rationale uh, behind an organisation uh, that Tommy Sheridan, the former um, Scottish Socialist Party MSP, uh, was standing under. He was standing under the banner of uh, Action for Independence, precisely on that uh, basis. And it's worth noting uh, that the news came through today uh, that that organisation is standing down in favour of um, Alex Salmond. So although uh, you've got your denunciations of Alex Salmond and his uh, ALBA party coming from the SNP, we shouldn't expect anything else. 
Um, nonetheless, in terms of uh, the cause of the SNP, which is clearly independence, uh, it could actually help it. Now, of course, this is very hard to work out because things don't work out just according to some slide rule. Um, you know, if the SNP is seen to be divided, if it's seen to be at war, one faction against the other, uh, that could weaken uh, the official SNP. So it's, it's not straightforward. All I'm saying, uh, though, is that uh, what appeared uh, to be a, a situation, you know, week by week, uh, that it changes, uh, that's certainly the case now. And where a few weeks ago I might have been dismissing the possibility of a constitutional confrontation, perversely with this split in the SNP, because you've had, uh, I think, one MP and one MSP already defect uh, to Salmond, as well as this action for independence, uh, suspend uh, its campaign in favour of him, um, this could actually add uh, not only to the numbers, uh, but it's worth noting the political positioning. Um, if the SNP by itself had won a majority, uh, it would clearly be under pressure uh, to do something illegal. Um, and that pressure has been added to, uh, I think, um, with the um, Alex Salmon's uh, formation of uh, ALBA. Now, as I say, you know, it, it, we'll have to see how the campaign itself works out, uh, but that's my uh, suspicion. In other words, if you were um, Nicola Sturgeon, what she seemed determined on is not to break the law, not to go outside uh, the law. So there was a lot of talk uh, in Scotland of a cons consultative Re referendum. Uh, in other words, uh, what should we negotiate with the Westminster government? Would you support us negotiating independence? Well, the Tories had already told uh, voters that they would boycott uh, such a referendum. I think the Labour Party would do the same. So would that be a, a clincher as far as Westminster was concerned? No. Uh, on the other hand, if they go down the route of Catalonia uh, and actually hold not a consultative uh, referendum, but a, 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 a referendum, we know that the Tories, of course, would boycott it. We would guess that the Labour Party would boycott it. And we would guess that in such a referendum, um, yes, no to independence, you'd get something like 94, 95 percent for independence. Would, under those circumstances, the Westminster government of Boris Johnson bow uh, to that referendum and say, well, you know, fair enough, you did win a clear majority in the Hollywood elections on May the 3rd. Um, this is democracy. Uh, no, what he said, actually, is that Alex Salmond, back in 2014, uh, said that the independence referendum would be once in a generation. And so he's talking about Scotland being allowed to have uh, an independence uh, referendum sometime about 2040. Uh, in other words, no referendum, no talk of um, uh, independence. And, you know, uh, under those circumstances, um, London and uh, uh, Edinburgh uh, are on a, a collision uh, course. Uh, in terms of the left, uh, no surprise to read uh, Socialist Worker. That's the paper of uh, the Socialist Workers Party uh, in, in Britain, the Cliffites. And they say, oh, well, the uh, forthcoming vote on um, uh, May the 6th, uh, that doesn't count. Um, you know, what counts is uh, action on the streets, uh, strikes, um, civil disobedience. And there's an organization that's just been established called Scotland Now, or Now Scotland, uh, which is precisely committed to that. And their first action uh, in terms of a demonstration is going to be on May the 1st. Um, the reason, of course, why the SWP um, doesn't consider, um, you know, votes, um, doesn't take them seriously is one 
uh, because uh, when the SWP has stood, it gets very small votes. Um, and in terms of its theory, uh, it does at least in half sort of resemble uh, old style anarchism of uh, Bakunin and the politics of action, action, action. Um, from our angle, uh, votes aren't uh, uh, the center, uh, but to use a phrase, you know, if you can't get them to vote for you, you're very unlikely to get, get them to fight uh, for you. Um, so the reality is uh, that actually the votes on May the 6th are important. These are very important um, elections uh, because it doesn't just pose who's going to be in government in Hollywood on May the 7th. It actually uh, stands as a potential constitutional crisis uh, in the United Kingdom, potentially um, uh, of a bigger uh, um, how should I put it, um, or, or of more importance uh, than the Irish uh, question, which has haunted uh, British politics at least uh, for a couple of um, um, uh, centuries. Why? Because Scotland is core. Uh, Scotland is part of the imperial project. Ireland never was. So although, um, you know, um, um, Ireland continues uh, to be a running sore. Um, constitutionally, uh, in terms of Britain, Scotland is more important. Okay. I thought I'd use um, um, this opportunity, having sort of mentioned the forthcoming elections uh, in Scotland, just to deal with this question that's come up in the uh, letters uh, column of the Weekly Worker over the recent period. And that's the call for us to put, quote, unquote, uh, flesh uh, on the bones of our uh, programmatic call uh, for self-determination in Scotland and for a federal republic uh, in Britain. Not a federal republic of the UK, not a federal republic of the British Isles, a federal republic of Britain, i.e. England, Scotland, uh, and Wales. Um, well, my answer uh, to the comrades is um, that uh, we would be very foolish indeed uh, to put flesh um, on the bones at the present time. One, uh, because in the longer term, uh, we actually uh, do not adhere to uh, federalism as a principle. Uh, we view it much more uh, as an expediency, something that um, objective conditions at the present time uh, force us uh, to adopt. Uh, uh, programmatically, uh, we're in favor of the largest uh, possible states and states that are both democratic, uh, but also centralized. We favor as Marxists centralized uh, states. Why? Because uh, they might be harder to overthrow uh, that's certainly true. Uh, but in terms of then uh, defending a revolution against uh, internal or external counter-revolution, you need a powerful state. So uh, I don't dispute uh, that it's feasible uh, for the working class to come to power in Scotland. It's just that I would dispute that is that economically sustainable? Uh, is that militarily uh, sustainable. And indeed, if comrades ask me, uh, well, you, you're proposing a federal republic of uh, England, Scotland uh, and uh, Wales. Um, this is the um, um, form that we envisage, at least in our program of working class rule taking. Uh, taking. Um, can that uh, withstand counter revolution? Uh, and my answer to that would be unhesitatingly, no. <laughs> It's, it's not qualitatively different, qualitatively different to the situation uh, uh, if you came to power just in Scotland alone. And that's why uh, we put such emphasis on the European uh, question, that Europe at least represents a viable project of where the working class could conceivably come to power because of its history, because of its uh, organisation, uh, because of the productive level of Europe, and it could conceivably 
uh, withstand um, a counter-revolutionary uh, bids, and it could uh, hold out um, um, a beacon of civilization to uh, workers in the United States um, that um, we actually represent a positive alternative uh, uh, to capitalism. A starving Scotland, a starving uh, uh, Britain um, is unlikely uh, to do that. So again, I'm not saying that we um, view Europe uh, as the end point, uh, but we view it as the most, um, how should I put it, the best starting point. That's, that's how I would uh, uh, put it. So in terms of um, any legislation, we would actually wish to be in the situation uh, when the working class comes to power uh, in Britain, that the working class has become so united as opposed to so divided that the question of federalism um, is an irrelevance. Uh, and instead of actually um, having a federal republic, uh, we go straight uh, to a centralized republic. But it depends. It depends on the class struggle. It depends on what's going on in Europe. It depends on what's going on in the world. In other words, the, the call for a federal republic, the call for self-determination for Scotland is about answering the palpable fact that there's a national question in Scotland today. And what we're saying uh, is that workers in England have no interest in oppressing uh, the Scots. Uh, we have the opposite interest. And to reassure you about that, we will be the foremost fighters uh, for your right, uh, if you wish, uh, to separate. If, if unity is unacceptable to you, all it would take is a straight vote in Parliament uh, and um, uh, Scotland uh, would be able uh, to separate. That's, that's our, that's our uh, position. So advancing the question of self-determination, again, is not a principle. It's a weapon in our armory. And we only use it uh, when we're confronted uh, by a genuine national question. If there's no national question, it, you simply wouldn't raise it. So today um, um, in England, anyone who raises the Cornish question and pretends that the Cornish uh, are a nation. Uh, we consider that completely uh, diversionary. On the other hand, clearly in Ireland uh, throughout the 19th century, uh, let alone before there was a national question uh, and you would raise some sort of progr programmatic demand in respect to Ireland. And it's just worth noting uh, as an aside that uh, uh, with Engels in his um, critique uh, which wasn't particularly um, damning, his critique of the Erfurt uh, programme. Uh, this is the programme of the German social democracy. He, he commented in passing and said, well, uh, in the United States, uh, maybe federalism um, is outdated and we need perhaps, he, he, he says, uh, to, more, to move towards a centralised uh, republic. But in, in the British Isles, he said, uh, you've got, what was it, um, three legal systems and uh, four nations and uh, federalism would actually, a federal republic would be a step forward. Uh, I don't think he was thinking so much about Scotland or Wales at the time, clearly, um, you know, knowing Engels' uh, uh, politics and knowing uh, uh, politics in the British Isles in the 1890s, he had Ireland in mind. And again, just worthwhile pointing out that in the history of Marx and Engels, when they started to look at the Irish question, um, when the Chartists were strong, for example, um, in, in England, uh, they simply talked about unity, uh, the unity, continued unity uh, between um, uh, Britain uh, and Ireland. It, it depends, in other words, uh, on uh, the class struggle. So no, we are not going to uh, put uh, flesh uh, on the bones. We'll see uh, what things look like when the working class actually comes to power. So uh, the other question that's been raised is what about the massive um, dominance that you would get um, in a federal republic uh, of the English? And I think that's a perfectly valid question uh, to ask, given our conditions today. Uh, I don't know the exact figures, but as a throwaway 
there are something uh, uh, over 50 million people living in England, two and a half thereabouts million people living in um, Wales, and some five million people uh, living um, in Scotland. We'll leave Northern Ireland um, out of it. So clearly, um, English votes are massively greater uh, than um, uh, the votes of um, Wales or Scotland combined and many times over. So how do we stop um, English votes uh, dominating? Well, the answer to that is we don't. Uh, what we have is a situation where if Wales, if the voters in, in Wales or Scotland find that situation intolerable, they have the right to separate. And I'll give the example of um, uh, the Russian Revolution. Uh, as my um, example. And I'll move on to give um, a couple of other uh, examples. In Russia, I don't again know the exact figures, uh, but if we said that um, there were 100 million uh, Russians, I don't know, this is a throwaway, I don't know what the situation was in 1917, but say 20 million Ukrainians, 2 million Georgians, a couple of million people living in Estonia, Lithuania, etc. The Russians were by far the dominant uh, nationality. And given the history of the Russian Empire, it was very understandable why Ukrainians, Belarusians, uh, Georgians, uh, Latvians, etc., etc. The prison house of nations feared great Russian domination. And that would be even the case uh, uh, if the Russians were led by the Bolsheviks. So hence, um, in the early 20s, the dispute uh, between Lenin on the one side and the Commissar of Nationalities on the other, Lenin and Stalin, in other words. And Stalin came up with a plan uh, of where the uh, um, various uh, nationalities uh, in the Rus old Russian Empire would have autonomy. Uh, and famously, Lenin objected and uh, breaking the traditional Bolshevik program of democratic centralism when it came to the state, uh, they went for a federal solution. Now, uh, we've got John Smithy here. He's got a letter um, in this week's weekly work, and he, he, he's calling uh, for an English parliament. And we've been discussing that today um, on the PCC. Um, logically, it would appear that in a federal republic of um, England, Scotland and Wales, you'd have an English parliament. On the other hand, it's worthwhile pointing out that until the, at the, until the very last gasps uh, of the old Soviet Union, not that parliament mattered particularly in, in the old Soviet Union, but it is still worthwhile pointing out uh, that there was no Russian parliament. Such were the numbers uh, of uh, Russian voters. They, they simply didn't uh, bother uh, to add uh, that extra tier. And I'm, I'm of that mind, others on the PCC uh, are of another mind. Um, at the moment, uh, the, the reason why um, uh, people raise this question um, is twofold. One, uh, because clearly there's a Tory majority and the majority of Tory MPs are not elected from Wales, are not elected from Scotland, they're elected from England. And so the idea from their point of view was, how do we get rid of the Tories? Well, we go for separation. Um, there is the idea, though, that the way to combat English nationalism um, is to go for this English parliament. I think that's a misreading um, of things. I don't think English nationalism is so much generated, at the moment at least, uh, by resentment of domination by Scotland or Wales. Now, you could have argued that. Uh, maybe under Labour governments when there was a solid Labour vote in um, Scotland, a solid Labour vote in Wales, which would then tilt uh, the balance against the Tories in Westminster and you had uh, Labour, a Labour government. Uh, but at the moment, what we have in terms of English nationalism, uh, I think that's the driving force behind Brexit. I think that's the driving force uh, that led to the uh, Brexit uh, uh, vote. Now, we boycotted uh, uh, that referendum. Uh, we don't uh, approve of, uh, of referendums. Uh, we think that referendums divide uh, the working class along um, national lines or false lines. They line us up 
against one faction of the bourgeoisie or another faction of the bourgeoisie. Nevertheless, I would raise with our comrades, uh, uh, Tam, uh, Dean Byrne and uh, Al Thomas, I think it is uh, writing in the paper, um, uh, this question that uh, if we're successful vis-a-vis -vis Europe, um, I, you know, by my rough back of the envelope sort of calculation, uh, British votes in Europe would be something like an eighth of the total. That, that's just a, a th throwaway calculation. Um, in other words, um, uh, Britain would be dominated uh, by roughly equal numbers of Italians, roughly equal numbers of uh, French people, um, not quite as equal numbers of uh, Spanish people, but there's an awful lot of Germans. Um, um, so uh, uh, do we object uh, to that? Well, no, uh, we're Democrats. And uh, unless there's uh, a genuine British question, uh, we wouldn't raise up the question of uh, separation. And, and the same applies uh, to what we are uh, penultimately aiming for before the um, emergence of um, a full communist system, i.e. a world uh, union of socialist states. One would guess uh, that if present population numbers continue, that would be dominated uh, by uh, comrades in um, China, India, Indonesia, the United States, um, Nigeria. <laughs> Britain is way down there, uh, you know, uh, in numbers. Does that concern us? Uh, no. Uh, you know, we're not, uh, we're not worried uh, uh, um, uh, about, um, you know, a democracy. We want to fight uh, for democracy. And we want to fight for the maximum democracy possible, um, but also we want to fight for a centralized um, state system. And that would apply on a global uh, level. OK, um, so if comrades want to discuss that, uh, obviously there's going to be time uh, for that. COVID-19, um, as we were going to press uh, this week, um, you know, we had uh, Boris Johnson coming out with his, um, were they off the cuff remarks or were they sort of something deeper uh, in his psychology and his political ideology? Well, I think both uh, uh, actually, i.e. Uh, that if you take Britain's success, we've gone from being one of the worst places uh, for COVID-19 uh, to one of the better uh, compared with other countries in Europe, Britain is no longer at the bottom uh, of the league table of, of shame and incompetence. Uh, now, because of uh, the vaccination uh, program, uh, Britain is succeeding. You know, there's sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Now, was this, this vaccination program due to capitalism and greed? Well, my answer to that is, well, of course, we know that we live in a capitalist society. We know that AstraZeneca is a capitalist institution. You know, if you want to talk about Oxford University, it's certainly not a socialist um, institution. But what you've had with COVID-19 is clearly uh, the principle of organization, um, you know, uh, trumping uh, the principle of the market. You, you've had need uh, put in front. Uh, a profit. Now, of course, there's profits being made. Of course, uh, there's been dirty deals. And of course, there's been uh, corruption on a huge scale. So yes, there's greed. Of course, there, there has been. But that, that doesn't explain the success uh, of the vaccination uh, program. You know, indeed, if you take Oxford University, it said to AstraZeneca that it would only cooperate with this company uh, if it was on a no-profit basis. And I think that lasts a, a year or so. I'm not sure of the exact deal. But it basically said, if you don't do that, we'll go elsewhere. So the guys developing the, this vaccine in Oxford uh, insisted um, uh, on that. And the government also was uh, paying out uh, to such companies uh, success or failure. In other words, we will pay for these vaccines if you fail as well as if you succeed. And certainly when I got my uh, dose of uh, AstraZeneca a couple of weeks ago, I was asking uh, the person uh, 
who is giving me it. Well, you know, how comes you're here? And she said, well, I'm a volunteer and my normal job is a lawyer. In other words, you know, if you look at uh, uh, this program, it's not greed on her behalf. It's not money on her behalf. It's clearly altruism. You know, um, she's simply doing it because she wants to help our fellow human beings. The exact opposite to Tory philosophy. It's the Tories who've thrown away their textbooks. It's the Tories that have had to retreat from their principle. Remember the famous words of Margaret Thatcher. There is no such thing as society, only men and women and families. And I can't remember how many words it was. Ronald Reagan's, was it seven most frightening words in the English language or is it eight? I'd have to count them out. But uh, I think they went along the lines of, I'm here to help and I'm from the government. Well, if, if there's anything uh, that counters uh, um, that ideology, it's been the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, um, that we had to overcome the market and only the state uh, could do that. Uh, greed and capitalism could not uh, achieve uh, what we've achieved uh, thus far. And to look at, um, you know, Tory philosophy in practice, uh, well, I would suggest, although it's a very complex situation because of states and all the rest of it, but have a look at Brazil. And this shows you uh, the chaos uh, that results when there isn't a government uh, that's willing to step in, that isn't willing uh, to actually uh, counter the logic uh, of the market. And it also shows you why there is no British solution to this pandemic. The name tells you everything, pandemic. Uh, if you look at where this uh, um, virus is raging, this is where uh, the conditions are ideal uh, for the mutation of this virus. From the virus's point of view, it's not out to be more deadly. Uh, it might turn out to be more deadly. What a virus is interested in is spreading. And so, yes, it's got uh, a tendency uh, to be more infectious. So as I understand it, the P1 strain that developed in Brazil is something like twice as infectious as the normal uh, strain. And Clearly, we've had other strains develop, like the South African strain, the so-called Kent strain. Some of, of these are more uh, uh, deadly. But the main thing uh, that nature will um, um, drive towards is the reproduction um, um, of the virus. Often we think about viruses and we think about, you know, something like Ebola. Uh, this is not a very clever uh, virus. It kills people far too quickly. Clever viruses, and I'm using a sort of human uh, term here, are ones that just spread and stay uh, spreading from one person to the next, from one year to the next. So the cold, common cold, is a very uh, successful uh, uh, virus. Either way, unless uh, this virus is tackled globally, uh, and unless these vaccinations go out very quickly, we'll see more and more variants uh, develop. And already uh, the government is talking about those over 70 in Britain getting a third jab uh, for variants uh, in September. So by the nature of this virus, they're already trying to develop a new vaccine uh, to handle the South African, to handle, is it a California one? Uh, to handle the Brazilian one and the others that will develop uh, until actually uh, this disease is forced back. As I said, you know, if you want to look at Brazil as an example of herd immunity and the fallacy of that, there it is in front of you with hospitals being overwhelmed and precisely uh, a virus that doesn't stand still. So a virus that used to be uh, particularly deadly for those with underlying conditions, but those uh, over 70. Uh, now in, in Brazil, uh, what you're seeing is people in their 20s and 30s dying uh, um, of, of this virus. Something that the El Presidente uh, tells people uh, in Brazil to stop moaning about. Very similar um, sort of response from Donald Trump, very similar response initially uh, from uh, Boris uh, Johnson uh, and the Tory 
uh, government. Okay, just a very quick comment uh, in case you missed it. Um, this is a polemical point. March the 21st was uh, the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Racism and Discrimination. Now, why the 21st? As I understand it, this uh, date was adopted to mark Sharpeville, uh, the massacre in South Africa of um, PAC demonstrators, uh, Pan-African uh, Congress who came out and were shot uh, by the apartheid uh, regime. Um, in 1979, uh, the UN adopted this day as uh, something to mark globally. Clearly, South Africa still existed uh, uh, then. And in that sense, what is going on is that uh, what you have is the, the Soviet bloc plus the non-aligned bloc uh, aligning with liberal opinion um, in the so-called West uh, against right-wing opinion. That, that's a very crude reading um, 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 of it. But if you remember, if you're old enough, uh, you had a wing of the Tory party, maybe the, uh, the majority of the Tory party, that were reluctant, that's what they said, reluctant supporters of apartheid. Why? Because it was a choice between apartheid and communism. That's how they uh, posed it. So they were against sanctions. They were against boycotts. Uh, they would have been against um, the International Day for the Elimination of Racism and Discrimination. But at some point, these people then come on board and they colonize these things. And I'm reminded in that sense of International Women's Day, which, of course, has its origins in the United States with the working class movement there. Working class movement, I emphasize. Uh, these people were fighting for universal uh, suffrage, as opposed to the feminists who were arguing uh, for um, um, equal rights for men and women. There's a big difference. Either way, it then was adopted by uh, the Second International at the initiative of Clara Zetkin and became um, a, a part of the calendar of the working class movement. We all know about the February Revolution, i.e. March Revolution in Russia. But of course, what, what's happened um, over the years, certainly with the collapse of official communism, is that the bourgeoisie itself has colonized and made March the 8th its own. And certainly that's, that's at least in part the case uh, with this um, March the 21st. Um, uh, day. Hence, I think it's worthwhile noting um, that um, if you look down the list of um, sponsors uh, that the UN boasts about, it includes uh, Stand Up to Racism. Uh, that's uh, um, uh, an organization established and run uh, by the SWP uh, in Britain. So we have a classic example of popular frontism a classic example of um, lining up with the, the liberal bourgeoisie against the right-wing bourgeoisie. And the liberal bourgeoisie, while they're not necessarily happy uh, with slogans such, you know, directed against uh, police racism, but who's in favour of police racism, they're certainly happy uh, for such demonstrations to happen in Moscow or Warsaw or Budapest. Um, they, they like those demonstrations. And if we look in Britain, although there wasn't any demonstrations because of uh, COVID, uh, what we saw is the TUC as the joint sponsor here. And you look at the list of speakers and it doesn't even come from just the left of the trade union movement or the left uh, uh, of the Labour Party. It's, it goes deep into the establishment. And at the end, you'd have Wayman Bennett of the SWP Central Committee as one of the speakers. Um, well, we're not against sharing platforms, uh, but basically acting as the, the spear carriers, acting as an agent of the liberal bourgeoisie, yes, we object to that. Um, um, you know, the SWP is so desperate uh, for um, respectability now after the... Um, um, Comrade, what does he call himself? Comrade Delta 
scandal uh, that it's it thinks nothing of lining up with the liberal bourgeoisie. And what is telling about the SWP is they have a conference and no one, no one gets up and objects to it. No one gets up and, uh, you know, acts and, and uh, points the finger uh, that the emperor's got no Marxist clothes, uh, that what the hell are you doing uh, mimicking uh, the old official communists uh, from after 1935 or mimicking uh, classic right-wing Menshevism um, in uh, the Russian Revolution, which is what the SWP um, uh, actually uh, does. Okay, in Britain, uh, there's been a whole series of spontaneous demonstrations, and you know that they're spontaneous. Uh, why? Because in the same way when it came to Sarah Everard, just look at the pictures of the demonstration, or if you go along, uh, people are not holding up SWP placards or placards from the TUC or placards from the Socialist Party in England and Wales or whatever. They make their own. They make their own out of cardboard boxes uh, and they're all unique and they're all, um, you know, um, often highly creative uh, in terms of their um, slogans uh, and demands. But what we have is a series of demonstrations, local demonstrations against the bill. Uh, this isn't against the bill in terms of the English word for the police, the old bill. Uh, this is against the police uh, bill uh, that the government is pushing through Parliament, which is a draconian um, piece of legislation uh, that uh, puts more demands on organisers of demonstrations, including the noise level of uh, demonstrations. I don't know what decibels uh, would be uh, uh, considered and, and what you do if the demonstration is over the permitted uh, decibels. Either way, of course, this goes hand in hand uh, with the conditions of COVID-19 and lockdown legislation and um, uh, laws uh, against um, um, gatherings of more than what well, it will be, I think, um, after today, more than six people in a garden sort of type uh, uh, idea. Now, the fact of the matter is, if you take these uh, demonstrations, some have been totally peaceful. As the uh, Sarah Everard demonstration or vigil could have been totally peaceful. Uh, originally, the organisers of this vigil on Clapham Common in South London said that they'd got 40 stewards. Uh, this is what we want to organize. They were in negotiations with the police and clearly the orders came down uh, the line from Cressida Dick, uh, the Metropolitan uh, uh, Police uh, Chief, but also from Pretty Patel because uh, the line of command goes up to the Home Office. That's how the Metropolitan Police Force works. Disperse this demonstration. Don't allow this uh, demonstration. Um, you know, hence the police attack um, on this demonstration, P completely peaceful. Um, there was no intention uh, of, um, you know, attacking anybody <laughs> to state the obvious. But this is the line uh, that some sections of the media and the Tories are now pushing. And all I advise comrades uh, who are in doubt over this, and I've heard comrades um, come out with the to me, the media, you know, the Tory media line, apparently in Bristol and in other places, what, what's happening is outside agitators are coming into our town determined to attack the police. Well, what a load of absolute codswallop. You know, look at some of the videos, even carried by the Daily Telegraph, let alone The Guardian. This is, these are citizen journalists pointing their cameras and the idea that uh, what you've got is outside agitators or what, what do they call it? A tightening knit groups that are going there for uh, trouble. No, if you want to look for those that want trouble, look at the police force. And clearly when it came uh, to the Clapham Common uh, vigil, uh, these were orders um, from uh, the Home Secretary herself uh, I'm only guessing about uh, Bristol, but I suspect it's the uh, uh, crime and police commissioner, but it's certainly the police chief in that area that says attack that demonstration. Just look uh, at the demonstration. 
the police are coming in with shields, not to fend off demonstrators, but as weapons against the demonstrators. They're battening uh, demonstrators. They're using dogs against demonstrators. They're using horses uh, against demonstrators. And then they tell you in the Daily Telegraph that someone launched a firework. It's, it's completely disproportionate. It's the demonstration that's being attacked. I was looking at the uh, video of the similar demonstration in Manchester. Uh, you've got to sit down in the middle of Manchester. So they stop the trams. OK, it's disruptive, right? Uh, but they're sitting down. And then you have two phalanxes uh, of police attack uh, that demonstration and start to drag people off. Clearly, that is something that's come from on high. I don't know about Pretty Patel, but it's come from on high. And of course, elsewhere in the country, you've had similar demonstrations pass with no arrests, no incidents. So the police have it within their powers to negotiate with organizers. When do you think it's going to come to an end? You know, Keep, keep your stewards there. Make sure there's social distancing, folks, something like that, because there's been loads of other demonstrations in other towns uh, throughout England that have passed off uh, without anyone being hurt, anyone uh, uh, being arrested. And this suits the Tory agenda because the agenda is at the moment uh, that we're in lockdown. But what the Tory agenda is, is to make the emergency um, uh, measures uh, that can be viewed as necessary uh, for public safety and public health, they want to edge it towards a permanent state of affairs. So it's not banning demonstrations, uh, but it's certainly putting handcuffs um, uh, on uh, demonstrations. It, 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 it's designed uh, to make protest. It's, it's designed to make dissent more dangerous and more difficult. That is the intention of uh, this present um, legislation. We have another um, cause celeb um, um, in um, Britain, um, Batley Grammar School. Uh, this is a school in West Yorkshire. And what we've had is a teacher. I don't know how old he is, but he was doing a religious education lesson and the lesson was blasphemy and in the course of that lesson um, he showed one of the um, Charlie Hebdo uh, cartoons I don't know which uh, cartoon uh, it was uh, and then things went uh, wild and the local mosque uh, mobilized its uh, supporters I don't know about the far right uh, what they've done I've only read uh, about them obviously taking uh, the other side, but the Tories have used it as their opportunity uh, to come in in favour of free speech. Um, I don't, you know, all I would say about free speech um, when it comes to religion in Britain, that under the Blair government, uh, they passed the Religious Hatred Act and loads of comedians and loads of people like ourselves objected to it. The SWP supported it because they only saw it directed, uh, um, you know, in terms of religious intolerance um, and hatred, only saw it in one, in one dimension, i.e. they only saw it uh, as something that um, Muslims are vulnerable to. Well, from our angle, um, we want to criticise all religion. And it's worthwhile pointing out that blasphemy still exists in Britain as a criminal offence, the last state prosecution for blasphemy in Britain, I can't remember the exact date, but it was in the early 20s. But the last successful prosecution uh, for blasphemy was in, I think, the early 1970s. Those that are old enough might remember someone called Mary Whitehouse. Uh, she was uh, a, a true blue bigot and would look at anything on TV that had the word, you know, that was a rude word or anything to do with sex. And she would, uh, you know, make merry hell uh, about it. And she was very successful. There was, for example, I'll come to the actual case. There was a very famous example. I can't remember the name of the playwright, but it was called uh, a play called Romans in Britain. 
and she thought that there'd been an, an example. This is on the stage of the National Theatre, the Britain's premier subsidised theatre, sort of top pinnacle theatre in Britain. And she thought there'd been uh, an example every night of live buggery uh, um, on the stage. And um, she actually took the National Theatre and the director and the actors to court. And of course, what it turned out to be, this, this is an act of buggery. And what we have, it, it was an, an, uh, an analogy with Britain and Ireland. And it showed uh, a Roman legionnaire um, uh, committing an act of buggery um, on a Briton. Um, and in the court case, of course, it came out, well, your honour, I use that. That's what I had sticking out of my toga or whatever the hell Roman soldiers wore. But Mark, uh, Mary Whitehouse was successful when it came to a poet. I can't remember the name, but his surname was Lemon, I think. And this was um, might have been a poem called The Love That Dares Not Speak Its Name. But it was about Jesus having a homosexual fantasy when he was on the cross. And that was successful. Uh, that prosecution was successful. So blasphemy remains something real. And of course, what the mosque was demanding outside uh, Batley School is that blasphemy laws be extended uh, um, beyond Christianity uh, to include other religions. I would guess other religions of the book, uh, i.e. Judaism, um, Islam, as well as uh, Christianity. Well, from our angle, we want blasphemy off the books uh, we want to abolish uh, the um, Religious Hatred uh, Act. It's worthwhile pointing out in passing, by the way, that Tony Blair had to exclude the books themselves from um, um, the legislation. In other words, you know, what happens um, in many countries, as you all know, is that some fiery preacher will quote Deuteronomy or some other Islamic preacher will quote you um, Muhammad, or is it God? It will be God, wouldn't it, um, on the Jewish tribes. Kill them all. And let alone when it comes to the Old Testament, there's so much uh, genocide going on there, you wouldn't believe it. But the books themselves had to be excluded uh, when it came to preaching religious hatred. Now, we want people to be free to quote from the Bible, the Quran, uh, the New Testament, uh, we want freedom um, for secularism. That means equal rights between religious people and non-religious people. Equal right to preach our religion. Uh, equal right to criticize uh, religion. Now, we're not child childish. Um, you know, we don't want to unnecessarily offend people. But we want to be able to freely use uh, Marxism to investigate the truths and the untruths. Uh, about religion. In my angle, from my angle, uh, religion is profoundly human with all, you know, the knobs and bumps of class society. Um, as Marx said, you know, uh, religion in that sense is an encyclopedia of um, our, our history. So, yes, I don't know what this um, um, teacher said, but he showed them a, a cartoon. I think the teachers should be free uh, to show uh, uh, cartoons. Um, if various religions have taboos uh, against that, so be it. Um, all I would say is I think that the headmaster, a guy called Gary Kibble, is wrong uh, suspending uh, this teacher from work uh, and in issuing a groveling uh, apology. In my view, sometimes you just have to say the truth hurts. And if you're going to learn about blasphemy, if you're going to learn, um, you know, uh, you know, well, the history that I've just been talking about, you know, have a look at this poem uh, by this uh, lemon guy. Have a look at uh, the prosecution by the state uh, of um, somebody I think was taking the piss out of Jesus in the early 1920s. I can't remember the actual um, in incident. Either way, study it. Uh, don't put blinkers uh, um, on school uh, pupils. Show them uh, the truth. The truth is complex. Okay, lastly, again, I'm being very British uh, this week. Uh, we've had uh, seven parliamentarians um, uh, having um, sanctions 
imposed on them uh, by the Chinese government. Now, in terms of the British media and uh, mainstream British politicians, this is China uh, lashing out uh, against plucky Brits who dare stand up for human rights. And there's lots of speeches and lots of um, statements in support of them. Uh, amongst them is uh, IDS, Ian Duncan Smith, former leader of the Tory party, but it's not only uh, the Tories, it also includes um, Helena Kennedy, uh, a Labour peer, and they're all very proud um, um, you know, to be sanctioned by China. Well, the first thing to say is, of course, this is a series of tit and tat um, that isn't just Chinese out of the blue uh, taking these uh, symbolic measures. Uh, this is the result of uh, the West um, imposing sanctions. And we've had uh, a long history of tit for tat. Um, you know, I don't know when it started, um, but um, it's been going on and on and on, and it will go on and on and on. Now, the last thing uh, that we uh, need to be saying is that this is because uh, Ian Duncan Smith and Helena Kennedy, let alone those are lining up um, alongside them, such as Boris Johnson, are genuinely concerned uh, for the rights of Muslims in Xinjiang, uh, the Uyghurs in um, uh, Western uh, China. You know, I mean, quite frankly, uh, by your friends, you shall know them. Have a look at the friends of the, the British royal family in the Middle East. Uh, and what we're dealing here with is uh, royal dictators who think it's perfectly okay uh, to dismember, dismember uh, uh, critics. Um, what we're dealing with here is people who are profoundly anti-democratic. And I'm talking about these people are the closest allies uh, of the West in the Middle East, bar Israel, bar Israel, which of course is a colonial uh, project that allows democracy uh, for one section of the population uh, under the rule of Israel, uh, but not another, i.e. the Palestinian people in, in the occupied uh, territories. No, what this is about is big power politics. And in that sense, anybody on the left that goes along with it, I think they're falling for a big lie. And to me, it's sort of similar big lie uh, to what uh, the British, I wasn't around at the time, I've read my history books though, uh, were telling people in Britain about German soldiers who invaded uh, Belgium. And the story in Britain was that German soldiers have invaded uh, um, uh, Belgium, which is true. Um, they were uh, doing that in order to go into France. Uh, they were going for a, a lightning strike uh, to knock France out of the war. Uh, the calculation of their generals was if this becomes a protracted war, we lose. We cannot beat the British Empire plus the French plus the Russians together. So Britain had constructed an international alliance, remember, that basically surrounded Germany um, from the east uh, and the west and certainly could cut Germany off easily uh, when it came to the sea. The British uh, Navy was vastly uh, superior, vastly uh, stronger. So the Germans had to develop a, a military doctrine of quick strike. And this is what worked in the Franco-Prussian war. That was successful from their point of view, and they wanted to repeat it. Uh, so hence the attack uh, on Belgium. Uh, and the response in Britain was that the Germans are going around raping nuns and uh, spearing uh, little babies on the end of their bayonets. And I'm sure that nuns were raped and I'm sure that some babies were bayoneted, uh, but clearly that is not the story. Uh, the reality of World War I wasn't the intervention of Britain and uh, the mobilization of uh, the British population to an incredible uh, um, um, degree uh, in terms of militarization. That wasn't in order to save poor little Belgium. Uh, this was to preserve British hegemony. And that's what we need to understand about today. Now, that doesn't mean uh, we um, want to whitewash China. Uh, I mean, its critics are right on one level uh, that uh, well, if you've got nothing to hide, let journalists in. Uh, they clearly seem to have something to hide. 
um, I don't know what's going on. I, I do know what's going on when it comes to talk of genocide. It's crap. I mean, it's completely crap. I mean, it just how anyone can seriously say it um, sort of takes my breath away. I mean, uh, Daniel uh, Lazar, but also ourselves, you know, anyone who looks at it knows what, what was famous about population and China was, I hasten to add, it was the one child policy. And that was imposed unequally on the Han Chinese, the majority uh, Chinese, and minorities such as Tibetans and uh, weavers were allowed either two children or three uh, children. So were the Chinese authorities committing an act of uh, genocide against the Han Chinese through their one child policy? You can say that they were, it was bureaucratic. It, it had its horrible side to it that I can readily go along with. We can discuss all that, but genocide is clearly nonsense. And it's a way of, how should we put it, uh, upping the ante that if you're prepared to say the word genocide, you're prepared basically to buy into the big lie. You know it's not true, but you're going along with the big lie. It reminds me in that sense of the accusations that the Labour Party um, is full of anti-Semites. Anybody who investigates it, anybody uh, with um, any sort of um, objectivity will know it's a big lie. And so clearly this is a big lie point I would make um, in terms of China is that the West might not have um, a short-term view of success, but it's clearly one of its plans is to break China up, um, you know, in the way that the former Soviet Union broke up. Whether it's breakable, upable in that same way, I don't know. But just look at a map. And if you look at a map uh, of Xinjiang, it's um, on the west of China, but it also goes south. And what country does that join China with? Pakistan. What does Pakistan join China with? It joins it with Iran. This is about the West surrounding um, uh, China uh, with a hostile uh, world. Meanwhile, uh, the US Navy, and I do say the US Navy, no doubt with um, some Australian ships and Japanese ships and way ho, uh, British ships basically uh, guards the coast uh, of China. And we are talking about the coast uh, of China. So the idea uh, that we're being sold is that China is committing genocide on its own uh, territory. That makes it beyond uh, the pale. But at the same time, we're, we're sold the story uh, that China wants to dominate the world. No, China doesn't want to dominate the world. It's in no position to dominate the world. What it, what it actually aspires to is national reunification. I can't remember the date. Uh, some comrades might. Remember uh, that China used to be represented at the UN uh, by what is now Taiwan. Uh, the regime in Taiwan, the old Guomintang regime, claimed with American blessing and British blessing to be the government of China. And the West basically said there is only one Chinese government. It's in Taipei and it represents the whole of China, but there is only one China. They shifted from that policy, obviously, when they started using China uh, and directing it against the Soviet Union. That's certainly true. Uh, nonetheless, that is the ambition of China. In the same way, it was the ambition of China uh, to reunite with Macau uh, and Hong Kong, because in Chinese psychology, again, I'm not Chinese, I don't know enough about China, I'm trying to sort of get myself up to speed on China, but one thing Chinese people will be very, very acutely aware of is the decades that China spent uh, under the thumb of foreign imperialists, under the thumb of uh, the Japanese militarism, uh, but also British imperialism, French imperialism, German imperialism, uh, the, 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 how should you put it, the national collapse uh, that that resulted uh, uh, from in China is something that's real and needs to be uh, understood. Uh, and in that sense, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the call uh, for the reunification of China is a perfectly legitimate 
um, uh, demand and a perfectly understandable uh, uh, demand. But clearly the United States is not only determined that that shall not happen, um, it's determined uh, to at least go for a Cold War uh, um, against um, uh, China and maybe use uh, surrogates uh, against China. And the obvious candidate uh, for such a surrogate who the United States is uh, arming with, arming uh, at the moment, clearly is uh, India um, over the Himalaya uh, uh, question, Kashmir and uh, all the rest of it. Um, but we shouldn't, and that, that's really my point, we shouldn't fall for the propaganda. We don't need to be soft on the Chinese government, uh, but we should not show any softness uh, towards uh, this propaganda. Hence, you know, if we're presented with a resolution um, in the labor movement that says uh, we condemn the treatment of the, the Uyghurs, I will go, well, I'll vote for that. If you have a clear analysis in that resolution about what the United States is doing uh, with this uh, issue and what the British government is doing with this uh, issue and the hypocrisy uh, that's involved uh, in this. It's, to me, it's the same as being presented, you know, in terms of an analogy with a resolution at the TUC in 1914 uh, calling upon us to condemn German imperialism. Well, I condemn German imperialism. I have no problem in doing it, but not to condemn your own imperialism. Uh, that's far more important. That's the key question that decides who is an internationalist and who isn't an internationalist. It's not a question of condemning China. The key question is uh, the West and the United States, which clearly gone uh, from a position of um, um, going to subordinate China uh, um, um, to a position where it now views China as a rival. And the fact that China didn't sell itself off uh, to the United States, didn't sell its independence, uh, is what is um, considered un unforgivable uh, by uh, the United States. That's it. Okay, thank you, Jack. That's a 